0: Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at LawPods. LawPods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I'm excited to speak with Danielle Garneau, who's a hybrid transactional lawyer and litigator, and a partner at Holland & Knight, where she co-chairs the firm's entertainment law practice. Her practice is focused on fashion, beauty, and luxury brands. Specifically, she works with startups to multinationals, and often works as outside general counsel to help clients navigate legal issues in the industry. She's also a mother of four daughters. She's written extensively and lectured all over the United States on topics relating to fashion law and also serves as an adjunct professor at the University of Miami School of Law. Danielle is a graduate of University of Miami, go Canes or the U, and Pepperdine Law, go Waves. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the podcast, Danielle. Thanks for having me. I always like to start by hearing sort of the origin story of my guests, sort of what made them decide to become a lawyer. Was this always the plan? How'd you end up in our profession?
1: So my origin story really started, I would love to say, like, I've always wanted to be a lawyer and my parents are lawyers, but that's just not the case. My origin story really was, I was at the U and I was an English major and I was dating a guy in law school at the time. And by the time I graduated, I was trying to figure out what my next move was. And like all good English majors who don't necessarily want to teach. Decided to go to law school. I also, that whole group of guys of, that were in law school at the time, I saw them and I was like, well, if they can do it, I can do it too. So that sort of, one of them ended up actually being my husband uh, years and years later. <laughs> <laughs> so um, ironically, it just came full circle. So that was really the origin story. It was, I was an English major. I didn't know what else to do. I saw a group of idiot guys, you know, become successful lawyers and was just like, all right, well, if those idiots can do it, I, I can do it too. So
0: <laughs> I love that. And when you were in law school, did you have any sense of like, what would come next? Like what your legal career would look like?
1: No. And to be clear, I went to law school not necessarily wanting to be a lawyer. I just hmm. wanted to, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I just wanted to get more knowledge. Look, if they could pay me to be a student forever, I would love to. I love all things documentaries and I love reading and on all those things. So I sort of I'm a sponge when it comes to knowledge. So I really went there just okay, I really want to get a good background in the law, and that can take me in all sorts of ways. I could practice law, I could be, you know, go into business, I could do whatever. Being you know, the typical type A person, I went to law school and it was like, okay, it's super competitive. Now I have to go, go to OCI and get the job. I have to do this. I have to go get the summer job and do whatever. And the next thing I know, I'm
0: in big law. <laughs> yeah. And your story, right, is not that uncommon. We know that story of people who go to law school either thinking they want to do something else or not sure what they are going to do. And especially if you do well in the beginning, you immediately get tracked and maybe there are some benefits to that, but it's also a challenge, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, and then look, I didn't go right into big law. I mean, part of that story really was I went to a medium-sized <laughs> firm in Los Angeles, then went to a very, very small employment boutique firm, and from there went into big law. You know, I sort of joke about it. I was like, there's no way in hell I would ever be able to get into big law now, right? All that little imposter syndrome stuff just like created <laughs> the best sure
0: sure right
1: no way I would ever be able to do it That was really my track. I think what allowed me to be successful in big law was the fact that being a smaller firm, I got really good hands-on experience doing as a first year, I was taking depositions and, mm. and all of the pleadings and motions and ran my own cases and, Things like that um, at an insurance defense firm, you know, you can, can do that. But I got great experience doing it. And so I think the transition was easy and less intimidating.
0: Yeah. And I guess I'd love for you to say more about that in the sense that I hear from students all the time people who listen to the podcast and they say, like, I didn't go to the best law school or I didn't do as well as I had hoped. And I just need to get that first job. And it frankly, the most important thing to me right now is getting a job, not the job can I ever end up in a quote-unquote better or more high-paying or in the area of practice? And your story sort of says yes. And I'd love to sort of like break down each of the pieces, but just at a high level. What advice do you have for those kind of folks?
1: Yeah, it's funny. I get the same thing from students. I mean, I'm sure you see it all the time. They're so tightly wound and freaking out about exactly what you said. Like Maybe I didn't go to a top 14 law school or you didn't test so well or whatever. And I say the same thing. Wherever experience you're going to have at whatever law firm is going to be an experience that you can learn from, right? You don't know anything going out of law school. As much as law schools love to say that, you know, they prepare you to be a lawyer, we really don't. <laughs> so you're really, your job is really to become a good technical lawyer in whatever subject that you're practicing, whether it's litigation, employment, corporate, M&A, whatever, IP, And learn those skills, right? And then take those skills. And if you want to go somewhere else or move somewhere else, you know, take those skills, but be really good technical lawyer and learn. I mean, even if you think that it's not exactly where you want to be, I can guarantee you that there will be experiences that you can learn from partners who you can learn from, and you can find a mentor wherever you are, really, hopefully, if you can't then run. But it's really at that stage in your career, it's time to really learn. And your first job is certainly not going to be likely your last job. Mm -hmm. I was very lucky. I was at a firm for 15 years. And then within the last four, I moved, you know, four times. So where you are doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to end up there and you just take those life lessons wherever you can get them.
0: Yeah, and I love that idea of like skill development along the way because I think when we're talking sort of to junior lawyers who haven't been out in the real world before and haven't sort of experienced the law yet, the assumption is that if you're an M&A lawyer, that's totally different than this other kind of lawyer and totally different depending on your industry and yes, there are certainly differences and our profession at least in my opinion is getting more and more siloed, but the skill development allows you to get that next job which might allow you to get the next job And on top of that, meet a whole group of new people that are opening doors for you. Just looking at your background, I mean, you've jumped to a lot of different areas of the law in a profession that is not geographically flexible, right? You started on the West Coast and now you're in Miami and you didn't start in fashion and luxury sort of clients, but now that's what you do. As you think back to all those experiences, what were some of the touch points or things that allowed you to ultimately end up where you you ended up today?
1: So when I got hired at Greenberg in Los Angeles, I was hired in the employment group. And at that time, employment and litigation groups were very separate. And it just wasn't a good fit for me. Like, I didn't love the group. I didn't love employment law. That was my background. That's why I got hired. I started doing a lot of anti-counterfeiting litigation. And This was really the first time. In my career, where I was like, "Oh wow, I can do fashion and the law." This is this Hmm. really cool. I go on raids with law enforcement. It was super cool stuff. And I remember at an associate happy hour that we had, which was a wine tasting event, had just enough liquid courage to go to the managing partner and say, "Hey, can I just move to general litigation?" And I think he had just enough to drink to just say, "Yeah, sure." And so that was really my next move where I realized that this wasn't a great fit to, I can make this work in this environment. I just have to transition myself to something else. Hmm. And I did that. And that's where I really started focusing on doing the anti-counterfeiting work, soft IP litigation, that sort of thing. So then I moved to Miami in 2000, end of 2007, which if you recall, was not a great time for the economy. Right. And (laughs) when I moved to Greenberg's Miami office, it was for litigators, it was all hands on deck for condo litigation because everybody wanted to get out of their second home, Chinese drywall litigation, worker dealer litigation, tobacco litigation. And maybe there was another sort of category at the time, but it was literally pick your poison. Hmm. And I was thrown into condo litigation. I don't enjoy condo litigation. And I walked into a partner's office and said, because you get to know me, you know that I'm a little dramatic. I threw open in the door
0: <laughs> and I said, I
1: quit. I don't care if I have another job. I can't do these cases anymore. It doesn't matter what size the apartment was. Well, apartment apartment size didn't change from the walkthrough to this to now. And so I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. And behind the door what that I threw open was the global co-chair of the White Collar Group. And he said, well, I've got 30 boxes of documents for a bribe that may or may not have happened in car. Do you want to take a look? And I said, does it involve a condo? He said, no. I said, great, just give it to me. And so that was another pivotal Point in my career where again I recognize hey, this probably isn't really what I want to do. I don't think I'm gonna be happy doing this. And then figuring out another solution within the firm to figure out what's gonna make me happy or hey, just go try new things, right? And yeah. I really loved white collar. Like I still do it, I still love it. I don't have the credentials that come from the of justice. I wasn't a state or federal prosecutor. Um, so I didn't feel that I was, I wasn't going to originate cases coming, you know, from outside of from Greenberg, but which is actually not true. But anyway, I thought that at the time. So that's when I started to develop my niche in fashion.
0: Yeah. I mean, what I love about that story, well, a lot about that story, because you covered like 3,000 miles in 12 years and four practice areas in five minutes or less, which is impressive in and of itself. But one of the things that I love about it is you kind of had to be your own best self advocate. And it didn't mean advocating for yourself all the time, but it meant at certain points in your career, those touch points, you had to say, I know I'm good enough, but this isn't working for me. (laughs) And I think that's something that a lot of junior lawyers and frankly, more senior lawyers are afraid of doing. They're afraid of saying, this isn't working. How can I use my skills in another way? It sounds like that courage was a big part of where you ended up. Is that accurate way of thinking about it?
1: Yeah. And look, I paid my dues, right? I put in the time I had done this. I mean, I was doing condo litigation for two years. I know I truncated that into five minutes. Sure. This wasn't like, oh, I don't like this person or I don't like this case or I want out. It was, all right, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to apply my skill set to this. And you can do that generally as a a litigator, right? Mm -hmm. And and I was like, okay, I did it. I hate it. I don't like it. I got to figure out what's next. And yeah, I mean, I think, look, Nobody is going to advocate for you better than you. We all want mentors, sponsors, and we all should have them, Mm -hmm. and that's great. But at the end of the day, nobody is going to be able to advocate for you like you. And to your point, yes, I was fortunate enough to have some self awareness in that regard, and and, yeah, (laughs) and did that. And I think that each firm—I know you talked to tons of lawyers—but each firm. It's its own ecosystem, it's its own environment, it's its own like sort of breathing human being in a weird way. And you have to figure out how to navigate that system, what works best for you. And sometimes when it doesn't work for you, it's time to go. But while you're in it, you sort of have to be, you have to read the room, you have to be savvy and figure out how you are going to navigate within those systems and make those moves that are good for you, your career, and good for you as a human
0: being. Yeah. And I think it's important not to step on that idea that these things don't happen overnight. If you don't like one day or one case, it's not time necessarily to leave. But if you do put in the time, don't just necessarily stay for three, four, five years, just because you've spent two years. You've spent two years, you put in your time, and it might be time for something else. I think what people know you for now is being fashion lawyer, which sounds very cool to me as a not fashionable human being. I guess I'm curious about the origin story of that part. Like how did you move from somebody who has all these skills to really bringing all these skills to a particular vertical in our practice?
1: Honestly, it was really survival, right? It was for me, Greenberg is a very entrepreneurial firm. Um, to their credit, they gave me the opportunity to develop this practice, it was the fact that I was a commercial litigator on a floor with 40 other people who did exactly the same thing that I did. And I looked around, I said, okay, well, why is, you know, as you're getting up and as a senior associate and a junior partner, you're expected to start generating work and clients and all of that stuff. So, you know, I I looked around, I was like, all right, well, what's going to differentiate me from like Frank who sits two doors down or Lacey who sits next door, you know, all of whom like i sit with best lawyers in town, right? These people are amazing and my friends and my colleagues and why is somebody gonna hire me over, over them? And so at that point in time, Miami was really coming into its own as far as creative design and art and architecture. We had Art Basel, you know, come down here. Every luxury multinational has their South American headquarters here. The design district was just starting to be built. And we are now really a destination for people all over the world. to um, And now it's even even more so. But at the time, it was just coming into its own. And so I looked around and I was like, well, who's representing these companies? And it turned out no one really. And where are the fashion industry groups and things like that? I went up to management with a business plan of, okay, I want to do this in the fashion space. And I remember just getting a kind of, what it felt to me was like a pat on the head and that's cute. Go see what you can do with that, right? So I got the blessing. I got the okay to do it. I don't think anybody thought that I was going to be able to do it. I think it was just like, we'll see what happens. At that time, it was really now focused on who are the industry players? Where do I have to be? Where are my potential clients going to be? What events do I have to do. And I, all while still trying to keep my billables up, doing all the stuff that I'm doing at that time, so it was a lot of extra time trying to develop this practice. But at that time, it was really survival. And I remember going back to management years later, get, having a book of business and you know having all these clients, and really got a didn't think you could do it, but we're super proud of you. And I was like, oh my god, this feels amazing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Let's reflect that in my paycheck. It was nice. I am internally grateful for Greenberg for supporting me
0: during that time. Wow. I think it's so cool that you sort of, on the one hand, right, you said you moved at the maybe the worst possible time when the economy was terrible, but then you were there when this industry was building up in an area that you clearly had an interest in and a natural knack for in a city that you are now living in. And so sometimes chance giveth and sometimes it taketh. I think that's really great. So talk to me a little bit about what your day's like. So, I mean, obviously, like I could call you a fashion lawyer, but if I were to follow you around for a week or a month or just even a day, what kind of things would I see you doing? What kinds of clients are you working with? How are you working on their behalf?
1: So it's what I will say, what I do love so much about my practice, one, and also being a hybrid transactional litigator is that. There is no, it's not cookie cutter. There's nothing routine. I get the weirdest stuff and the weirdest clients, and whether it's an actual fashion brand, an influencer, something, you know, in the entertainment space, a talent. I mean, it really runs the gamut, which is really cool. Like, I really love doing what I do. Sometimes it is counseling, sometimes it's actual therapy. It's working with creatives, especially if you're working with the creatives directly, if they don't have a business person or an in-house counsel, that is a very special relationship because they're creative, right? They are tasked, they just want to build a brand and they want to make beautiful things. They are not thinking about taking photos from paparazzi photos and then putting them on their Instagram because everybody thinks that everything on social media is free so <laughs> they're not looking at the legal pitfalls that they could be falling into and some of them can be quite significant and quite costly so my job really and that's how is to figure out where those risks are for those clients and to advise on those risks like all lawyers do is really we see risk and we try to, you know guard against it so a lot of it is counseling some of it is litigation some contentious disputes things like that brand protection and a lot of it is really business strategy. I mean, one of the best parts about my job is the fact that I often get called in when it comes to you know marketing strategy or building a brand. Where it might not necessarily legal, cool, but there's also sort of components for, especially with marketing, right? And, you know how they're going to market, uh-huh. what kind of claims are they going to make, et cetera. What kind of content are they going to use, and how are they going to use it? So. But I I get to come in on sort of like building the brand side of things. And I love those clients that I call them like Instagram darlings, right? That are really, well, that's to talk, but that are really built on social media because they generally don't have in-house counsel. They need help. And then I get to be a part of creating things. So it's my own way of being creative too.
0: Yeah. Say a little bit more about that. Like, have you always had a creative side and this is how you've found a way to connect to it? Or do you just like working with people with a big creative side, like, how does that play sort of your personal interests and ways of seeing the world versus how you're sort of counseling clients and finding clients?
1: Yeah, I never thought I don't, you know, I've said this, I'm like, I don't think I'm a creative person at all. I can't draw. I can't paint. I can't, you know, I I don't do anything. Like I play sports, right? That's sort of my thing. But I guess doing what I do and even just being a lawyer, like you are creative, right? Particularly in litigation, like, You have to be creative with your arguments. You have to sort of think outside the box. How is this going to work? I guess we're all creative in our own weird, nerdy way. So I guess that's sort of my outlet. But now I get to be a part of like making cool things, right? I consider myself a branding person, right? Whether it's my own brand, whether it's my firm's brand, whether it's my client's brand, that's how are we going to leverage whatever assets we have or whatever skills we have to become the best, most recognizable brand in the world. What are we going to do and how are we going to do that? That's really my thing. How are we going to take this to the next level?
0: And you've spent some time in the classroom teaching sort of students in this area of law. And obviously, I imagine that your class is not just like, here are a bunch of statutes that happen to touch fashion issues. It also is the kinds of things you're talking about, the bigger picture, brand picture, what do you recommend to somebody who hears about your day or sees what you do and says, that sounds really great to me? It might fit my skill set particularly well. It might fit my interests really well, but I have no idea how to get there. And if I look at Danielle's path, it certainly wasn't a straight line. What do you recommend to those people?
1: Yeah, it's hard because honestly, like I get so many requests for mentoring and, and things, and I love it. And I try to do as much as I possibly can. But it's always, how do we get to do what you do? And like you said, my path was really winding. I have a ton of different skill sets. I'd be an excellent general counsel somewhere just because of the breadth <laughs> of like what I've done. And I do a disservice to associates who work for me because I do do so many different things. So, for me, I work with a transactional associate and I work with a litigation associate. Mm. And they don't really necessarily over, they're all connected if we're working on a deal together. But because it's different skill sets, they don't necessarily match. So, I can't really have one associate just working, doing what I do, because I'd be doing them a disservice because they're not going to get the technical skill set that they need Mm. in order to further their career in law. Right. So, I go back to when I tell my students, Again, be a really good technical lawyer in whatever that you're doing. Fashion law is an industry practice. There's no statute, there's no code book, there's no nothing. It's an industry practice. And there's so many different practices that really touch upon fashion and all of them. So become a really good lawyer in whatever you pick and then figure out a way wherever you are, whatever firm you're with, to figure out how to service those clients, right? So yeah. I guarantee every firm, most firms, especially you know, big firms, will have clients in multiple different industries, including fashion and entertainment. If that's what you want to do when you're working there, if you're in real estate, you're like, okay, I want to work with fashion brands. Like, how are you good, as a real estate lawyer? Okay, well, retail, right? So figure out who with the firm is servicing these clients, figure out how to apply your skill set to them, and off you go.
0: <laughs> I think that's so impactful and thoughtful. And I think a lot of times we think of practice areas as being the same thing as skill sets. And as you just described it, maybe that's true for certain practice areas. The practice area is sort of in a Venn diagram an an actual circle on the skill set. But for so many practices, especially today, the skill sets are actually transferable to any number of types of clients. And it's great to get to know the clients, but you also need to build those technical skill sets, even if you're doing it for other types of clients that you can then say, well, you know what? I haven't worked on this particular client before, but I've done this kind of case before or I've done this kind of transaction before. Is that right?
1: Yeah. When I started doing like entertainment, more entertainment related matters, initially I was like, I'm not an entertainment boy. Like, this is weird. I don't know that I can do it. And I looked at it and I was like, wait, I do this all the time. It's just in a different thing. And now most deals always have some sort of like social media component to it or IP component to it. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just very, very, very transferable.
0: Have you ever had someone come to you and say, you know, I want to do entertainment. I want to do fashion law because actually what they like is fashion, but they actually wouldn't make a very good fashion lawyer or they wouldn't enjoy being a fashion lawyer or an entertainment lawyer. And if so, could you talk to me sort of through the difference between what interests you in your outside life and what maybe you'd be interested in in your professional lawyer life?
1: it's funny. So when I graduated law school in LA, I was like, I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. Right. And and I was dumb enough to walk into an interview and say that. And they're like, well, what does that mean to you? And I'm like, I don't know. I just want to be in the entertainment industry. Right. So they're like, okay, but film finance, you want to work on talent side, like business affairs, what do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. I just want to do entertainment. Right. So I get a lot of that. I can't say that anybody's come to me and said, I want to be a fashion lawyer. And it's just because they like, Fashion and that they wouldn't be good at it. I don't think that anybody at that point really knows in their career what they would be good at. I get a lot of lawyers looking to do something different than what they're already doing. Again, the issue, the problem I see for that is exactly what do you want to do in this space, right? It's the same question that I was asked like, what exactly do you want to do in this space? How are you going to transfer your skill sets? Like when they're young, It's like a blank slate. You can do, you know, like you can do whatever you want. You like litigation, all right? Well, IP cases, you know, do that. Brands are always in litigation, and you know, where you want to do M and A, you know, it's big in the beauty and fashion space. But it's a challenge when it's just what you got to really think through. How are you going to make that move from being a real estate litigation attorney to working in fashion? How are you going to get your clients? What does that mean to you? And I don't think anybody truly understands what it is. I don't even think people that I work with know what I do. So it's like, (laughs) that's why I get called for like weird stuff. If it doesn't fit in a box or like just give it to Danielle, she'll figure it out.
0: (laughs) I mean, that sounds like a great way to get business, frankly, is to be the person who people call when they're not exactly sure who to call. Yeah. And this is something that you said a few minutes ago that I want to follow up on, which is this idea that you see yourself really as somebody who builds brands, whether it's for your clients, for your firm, or for yourself. Talk to me a little bit about sort of your approach to building your own brand as a lawyer, your own approach to building a book of business. A lot of my listeners are sort of more junior in their career, but what I've heard from guest after guest after guest after guest is you're it's never too early to start thinking about how you're going to bring in your own clients and cases, whether you're at a small firm or a big firm or anywhere else. Talk to me a little bit about your philosophy and your thoughts on that topic.
1: I think it's really important. One, I think firms do a disservice to associates by saying, okay, your job is really just to do the work and sit behind a desk and have no blood client involvement. I think that that's a terrible, terrible disservice to the associate because, like you said, I think it should always, always be focused on how am I going to bring in clients? It's just, you don't have to necessarily spend all of your time doing it, but I'm just saying, just start thinking about it. I don't think that you're ever too young. And I tell this to my students and I apologize for the language, but I tell them, I said, don't be an asshole. Like the legal community is too small, especially litigators who tend to be assholes. The legalist community is too small, particularly Miami is really small. You never know who you're going to run into down the road, whether it could be a potential client. Just don't be a jerk, right? Because your reputation really is all you have. And anyway, so getting back to that and keep your network very, very close. Keep your friends you know, that you went to law school with close. Keep those relationships because, again, that's the best place to start. There's nothing better than you know, one of your friends going in-house and you're like, dude, just send me what you got. That's the best way to start. Friends and family, right? So, want to hear the story of how I got my first client?
0: Yes, please. So,
1: <laughs> so my first client, I was chair of the creative design committee for the Beacon Council, which is a quasi-public private entity down here that's responsible for the economic growth of Miami County and a great organization. And I was involved with the creative design committee. And I went to a meeting and there was a bathing suit designer, swimwear designer who I knew I didn't know her personally, but I'd heard of her and I think I probably had like a couple of her bathing suits and I saw her and I was like, oh, this is somebody I need to talk to. And she saw me and we sort of met across the room and started talking and she's like, oh, you're a lawyer. I need a lawyer. And I'm like, I'm thinking in my head, like, yeah, I need a client, right? Um, This would be great. And so we started talking and look, I know at that point in time, she can't afford your Greenberg rates. And I can say this now because it was so long ago and, and I don't think anybody's going to hold it against me. But I said, look, I'll do your contracts, your legal work, but you need to teach me the business hmm. because I had no idea anything about the fashion business. Like I knew that this is an industry I want to go into and, and I knew I needed to learn the business because I think the best piece of information that I got from Cesar Alvarez, who was the chairman of Greenberg at the time, and I love him dearly, was that in order to be a good lawyer, you have to understand how the business works. So again, you can see the pitfalls and assess that risk and counsel your clients accordingly. You have to understand the business. Now, as litigators, you get called in when there's a problem to solve that problem, and then they never want to see you again, right? So it was very hard to learn the actual industry and the business because we're never called in. To learn about it. They're just like learn this there's problem, figure out the business around that problem, solve it, and then like go away <laughs> forever. Right. So going back to the client, I said, okay, I'll do your work for free, but you have to teach me the business. And so I sat down with her because I was like, I don't know what like 30 tons are. I don't know what sourcing is. Like, where do you manufacture? How do you hmm. manufacture Like, and when I tell you I was full service, I was out there on a photo shoot with the reflectors, like holding it. I mean, I really fully immersed myself in what it would take. And and I do that really with all of my clients now because they're all in the same industry, but each may operate a little bit differently. They may be in a different jurisdiction. And so that I can see those pitfalls. But that was really how I got my first client. And then Miami took me to New York, New York, LA, LA, Europe, you know, working on South America. That's sort of how it
0: starts. I mean, it makes sense. And if you think back to where we started, right, which was you developing a bunch of skills, but not in any particular given area, you have those skills. That's like a necessary, but far from sufficient, it sounds like way to do your business. Then you got to learn the business. And then you have this like really nice skill set. And I imagine one way to get clients, right, is to be a good, to service the clients you have well so that you can get referred. Is that right?
1: 1000%. Reverrals are the biggest source of flattery. You know, yeah, you definitely want to do a good job. Going also to brand building, I will tell you one of the things that I hated the most in life was public... I like it now, but I wanted to die back then. It's public speaking. I hated it. Freaking like just would avoid it at all costs and really like wanted to die anytime the thought of it would ever come up. So I knew going into this new venture that I was going to have to do a lot of things, including being a subject matter expert in fashion and how do you come become a subject matter expert? You need to speak you need, and you need to write. And so writing, okay, fine. I can do that. But speaking, oh my God. <laughs> so I hired a public speaking coach and worked with him for a bit on getting comfortable in front of people. And my first public speaking gig was bench and bar conference in Miami Beach. And so that was a bunch of lawyers and judges. And I don't know if you've ever spoken before a bunch of lawyers and judges who like to think that they are the smartest people in the room and love to show it but that in my infinite wisdom was the first one that i was going to do so my thought was all right am i going to talk about where they can't ask me any questions (laughs) so my first topic and this was as it was becoming a real thing was influencer marketing Hmm. and the laws the ftc regulations and section five and that these people were not going to know anything about influencers instagram this was way before tiktok and i was gonna hopefully skate by on that and my instincts were a hundred percent (laughs) correct so
0: i was gonna ask if it worked or not sounds like it did
1: oh it worked oh no, no no it worked so i prepared i spoke it didn't, I maybe got one
0: question and that was it.
1: And then everybody was just intrigued and nobody had ever heard of anything. And So I was like, okay, I can do this. And then it was just practice after that. So speaking engagements, if you have a fear of it, work with somebody to get over it because it really is such a, a brand builder. And I'm a true believer is that you never know where your next client or matter is going to come from and i've spoken at conferences and somebody has come to me 2 years later and said i saw oh, you talked about <laughs> this i have this issue you know can you help me yeah craven. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> right the best time would have been right after i spoke but the second best time is whatever time they're coming to you and that's fine
1: and every firm when they're supporting you as to, you know going and for you to go to conferences and things like that, are always like, What's the ROI on this? And you're like, I can't even begin to articulate that from you because I don't know, it could be tomorrow, you know, I've walked out of conferences with work, or I've gotten work two years later, or some just didn't work, right? So you sort of figure out what's good for you. I personally like to speak at conferences where there are no other lawyers, right? I like to not have competition. I'm lucky to do that in fashion space, it's a lot easier because lawyers, it's not necessarily a lawyer heavy. Just figure out where your clients are going to be and how to get in front of them and, and be that subject matter expert.
0: Is there anything that you think is really working for lawyers in terms of their brand, especially given that you're around social media and all these other things, or anything that, you, that lawyers are doing today that you're just like, they should stop, this is not going to work, or this is cringe and not a good way to build your brand?
1: Yeah, I think lawyers at a very basic level are terrible marketers. They are just really bad at marketing themselves. I think women, we're getting better at it. But because we are not so inclined, we, like, we feel like it's bragging or we shouldn't be posting about our latest achievements and, and things like that. I think that that just does us a disservice. And everybody should post all of the good things that are that are happening for them. I feel that lawyers, especially on LinkedIn... Tend to be on LinkedIn, appear to be more robotic. One of my pet peeves, and I hate this so much, and I, I you know, when somebody asks me if I handle my own social media, I take it as an insult <laughs> because, and I know lawyers that do this, they have their marketing teams like post for them and they post content and it's so inauthentic, right? The hmm. thing that makes people successful on social media is the authenticity of who you are as a person. For me personally, especially, particularly on LinkedIn, because we all look like corporate robots, is I will mix in something personal. I love to see personal anecdotes on LinkedIn, because if I see another like super lawyers or like award, it's just like, all right, like I get it, like amazing for you, like I get it. But you know, I really wanna know who you are Mm. as a person, because I know that there's a person behind the lawyer. So I love seeing like people's pets or whatever, or that like they went to some cool concert or did whatever, or met some celebrity. Like I like to see what makes people tick. And I think that that indie, that authenticity, and that engages people. And that's really how you build a brand is by showing who you are. So people want to engage with you. I
0: love that. Look, we're getting towards the end of our time. So I'm going to ask two questions. And one is directly related to what you just talked about, which is the personal side. And I, we were talking before we started recording, I have two young kids, you have four daughters. I think if I have this right, they're within five years of age or close to it, which is remarkable. I guess I'm curious how you, different people use different words like work-life balance, work-life integration, parenting and being a lawyer, being a mother and being a lawyer, especially with a big, fast-paced industry and client base. What are some of your thoughts on how you've been able to play those two roles in your life?
1: It's really what needs you the most in that moment.
0: Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's my
1: clients, sometimes it's the firm, sometimes it's my kids. I can't be there for everything. I just can't. I hope and pray that I'm setting a good example for four daughters who see a mom out there and working, also spending time going to their tennis matches and soccer games and things like that. Can I be at everyone? No. I mean, it's a running joke in my house that I sh- none of the teachers know who I am you know, at school, there's just things I won't do and I'm not doing the PTA. Right. So you just have to figure out really what works for you, what works for your family. I mean, I do a lot of traveling and a lot of international travel and I get asked all the time, like, Oh, don't the kids, are they upset about it? I'm like, no, they were born into this. Right. Like, it's just like, okay, mommy goes away. She comes back and she brings us like cool stuff from some random place. Right. And so that's just, how it is. I think work-life balance is a misnomer. I don't think that there is such thing. And I think that it really is just triage and what needs your attention.
0: Yeah. I mean, no one would know this from the back and forth, but we've been trying to do this interview for a couple of months, but between the two of us, we had a lot of trouble because I like to interview in the afternoon and the afternoon is often when children need you unexpected. And that definitely takes precedence. And so I've, even in the little time we worked together, albeit by many miles apart. I've seen how you do that triage. And you know what? I think everybody kind of gets it. And the people who don't get it, it's sort of like, I don't really want to hang out with you anyway. (laughs) You just kind of got to get it.
1: That's exactly right. And I think one good thing I think out of COVID is that people were very, are are now much more accepting of people's time, family commitments and things like that. I, I can't tell you how many times I've taken conference calls like in my driveway or in my closet so that my kids, you can't hear my kids. Now with COVID, it's like random kid walks by or random animal walks by or like maybe you end up like with a weird filter, like you're a cat lawyer, you know? So it's like, everybody's sort of just okay with weird stuff that happened. So that has, I think, been a saving. Race and for working parents, I think everybody is way more just like chill about it. I remember being on a conference call once and somebody's kid was like crying in the background, and there was a lawyer who said, Can somebody just please, you know, it wasn't shut that kid up, but it might as well have been because it was so right. abrasive. And I just kept like, I just cringed and I was like, Oh my God, thank God it's not mine. But I'm sure everybody assumes it's mine because I'm the only woman on the call, right? So it's like, <laughs> you know. That's, I think now it's everybody's just like, than, yeah, there's a screaming baby,
0: so what? Yeah, and you know what? Did it really hurt anybody, the screaming baby? Probably not.
1: No, I was like, why do you have to be such a jerk? Like, it's just...
0: <laughs> I will always remember teaching my class on Zoom while my daughter was doing kindergarten on Zoom right next to me. And her like elbowing me as a kindergartner and being like, dad, you need to be a little bit quieter about legal writing because I can't hear my teacher talk. And like, we've all now gone through that, or at least some segment of the population has gone through that. And that changes you and changes the way you think about what's normal and what's not.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I think I'm still still traumatized by it. Like there's, I should never, ever, ever, ever be a teacher. Like God bless them all. I should never, ever. My kids are scarred. I'm scarred. We should never, ever do that again.
0: (laughs) I'm with you. So the last question is the same question I always ask, which is for a piece of advice specifically, and you've given a bunch, but what's something that you would share with somebody who's either just starting law school or maybe just finishing law school or something you sort of, you know, now that you wish you knew when you were just starting out on your career?
1: That it's all going to work out. It's all going to be okay. Even if you don't get that job that you want, again, like I'm a big believer in how the universe works and it works in the weird sometimes. Painful ways, but it's all going to be okay. That's what I wish I wasn't so stressed out about stuff that I really had zero control over at the time. You work as mm. hard as you can possibly do. You'll do, you'll prepare for those interviews. You'll, you will put in the time and the work, and sometimes things that are just out of your control, like sort of shape your destiny. But it's all going to work. It's all going to work out the way it's supposed
0: to. just great. Just breathe. I love that. That's a great place to end. So if anybody's listening, take Danielle's advice and just take a deep breath and get on with your day. So thank you, Danielle, for doing this. I really appreciate it. I hope we can eventually meet and hang out in person. But for now, just I'll have to say thank you on Zoom. Yeah, for
1: sure. No, next time I'm in DC, I'll let you
0: know. Let's do it. Fantastic. All right. Well, be well and uh, keep in touch. Thanks again. Thanks, Jonah. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.